0: I invite you to take your Bibles with me. Open them to Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. You can, um, I think it's safe to say you can blame Larry for my voice today because he has told me on numerous occasions that he prays for my harm and discomfort on Sundays so that I preach in weakness and the Lord would be powerful. I don't much appreciate that. But, maybe it'll work. We were sitting there singing and I was unfortunately able unable to do that. I was thinking of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And so let me read that passage because really it's what I want to say to you this morning with a voice like this. In verse 1, Paul says, "When I came to you, brothers, So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's how I feel this morning. Coming to you in weakness, trembling, a little bit of fear that my voice might not carry. But those are wonderful odds, aren't they? Because if God does a work among us today through his word, we have to say without a doubt, it's only him who did it. Because I have no power to persuade no inflection to um, induce emotion in you. We're just pleading with the Lord for Him to bless our efforts today in studying the Scriptures. So let's do that, and then we'll jump into Luke 19. God, we always believe that if any good happens in preaching or in worship, it is by Your hand and Your hand alone. But today, God, we have to admit That if any good happens today in studying Your Word, it is not an ounce of our effort or ability or skill. Lord, I must confess to You my struggle this morning with so much passion welling up within me because of the truth of this text and not being able to raise my voice is difficult. And I fear honestly that it this monotone speech might put some to sleep. It might bore some. And so I plead with you to be engaging through such a weak vessel this morning to engage not just minds but hearts, That for some reason, some unexplainable reason, people might leave today saying, out of all the services I've been to, that one captivated me the most because You were abundantly gracious to us and merciful in moving among us, in capturing our heart's attention. Bless this time, Lord, in just that way. This is all for naught if you do not bless it. Let us see the importance of this passage. Let it stir our hearts to adoration. That we would be in awe and amazement, God. For your care and concern for our salvation. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray and ask all these things. Amen. Well, we come to the long awaited passage of Luke chapter 19, verse 28. It's this climactic point in Luke's gospel. We've been looking forward to it for several months now. It's the triumphal entry of our Lord. It's likened in so many ways to ancient times and ancient practices when a general or a king conquered a people or a region during wartime. And then they would be paraded through the streets of their capital city in victory, in a victory parade, a victory procession and celebration. And people would line the streets and throw flowers out and chant their names and, and chant hallelujah and chant their praises. It was this, a huge celebration citywide. And so much of the Lord's triumphal entry mimics just that. It, it is, without a doubt, this victory procession of Christ. There are only a few differences. Notable differences. One. In our Lord's triumphal entry. In verse 28. There's no war that has been fought. Or won. Two. There's no army in tow. No slaves in captivity. As other generals would have. No treasures being brought behind him. And three. Most notably. And I think key to the whole text. Is that this is a victory parade. Parade being declared before any work had been done. We we have the privilege of looking at the New Testament and knowing what lies ahead. It's the cross and resurrection of our Lord where He declares victory over, over sin, where He declares victory over death, over Satan. But He's proclaiming victory in this passage almost a week before His crucifixion. Which means there's this sovereign... Divinely orchestrated victory parade taking place because although nothing has happened yet, Jesus knows I win in the end. And I'm declaring victory even now. What's striking about this event is that it's recorded in all four Gospels. It's one of the few passages that is. And in Luke's particular account of it, Jesus never enters Jerusalem. It's really not the triumphal entry in Luke's account. It's this victory parade. Luke is much more concerned with the details of this long drawn out procession than he is with Jesus actually coming in to Jerusalem. And in being concerned about this procession, he's laying out how detailed of an event this is and that it follows God's exact design and plan. In fact, look over in Acts chapter 2. Luke also writes the book of Acts. He records Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And in verse 23, we know these verses. We reference them often. In verse 23, Peter preaches this. Luke records this. And it should be our interpretation of the rest of Luke's Gospel from the triumphal entry or victory parade to the end. In verse 23, he says, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and you crucified and killed Him by the hands of lawless men. The, the key point of that verse being the death and resurrection of Jesus was the definite plan of God. Our almighty, holy, righteous Powerful God, decreed and ordained the sacrifice of His Son. And that same principle applies even at the triumphal entry. What takes place in this passage is the definite plan of God ultimately to the cross. And what is so striking is Jesus doesn't just know what's happening and know what lies ahead. He's the one planning it all out and bringing it to completion. When we read of the Lord entering into Jerusalem or riding in this victory procession, we see Him riding knowingly and willingly to the cross. So today, if you've ever wondered what Jesus thinks about dying for you, we see it in this passage. He's wholeheartedly invested in dying for sinners. Look with me in verse 28. Let's read the text. And then perhaps uniquely we'll walk through it in a much shorter fashion. Verse 28. When Jesus had said these things, this parable preceding this passage, He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When He drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of the disciples saying, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. As we consider this victory procession, there's three things we're going to highlight. Number one is in verse 28 alone. And it is that the victory procession is a very focused event for Jesus. There's been this transition as we've highlighted in Luke's Gospel narrative since chapter 18, verse 31 through 34, when Jesus pronounces for the third and final time his inc- uh, coming death and resurrection, the whole point of the gospel has shifted so that the cross would be this climactic point and event. And Luke has been forcefully reminding us that that is the whole point of going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem in Luke's gospel at this point in the narrative is this constant reminder of the death of Jesus. And so when we come to verse 28 and we see that Jesus is yet again going up to Jerusalem, we're reminded over and over, we're not just to read in that pure geography or location. We're to read in that a resolute devotion of going to his impending death. Again, Jesus, as will be evidenced in this whole event, knows every detail of what lies ahead. Ultimately to the cross, He knows how many times the nail will be hit to pierce through His wrists. How many times the whip will strike His back. He knows exactly who's going to spit in His face and what the makeup of the DNA of that spit is going to be. He knows how many times He'll be struck in the face. He'll know how many hairs are pulled out of His beard. He'll know the very heart condition of every person who mocks him while he's strung up on the cross. Every detail of his crucifixion is perfectly known to him. And yet, resolutely, we still find in verse 28, he's going to Jerusalem. That's important, church, because you or I in that instance would be going anywhere but Jerusalem. We'd be looking for any kind of outlet, any kind of excuse. We'd be begging for something to happen. Maybe I'll break my foot and I can't make it there. Anything to prevent me from going to Jerusalem. But that's not at all how Christ views it. This particular event is evidence that he is focused solely, completely, only on Jerusalem. And we know that that means the cross. That's where he wants to be, that's where he's traveling. That's His whole point and purpose and mission in life. Get to Jerusalem. So the crowds and the disciples, they're celebrating and they really don't have a full grasp of what's taking place. But make no mistake, our Lord most certainly does. And it's an important moment for Him personally. We see in other passages of Scripture how serious the Lord takes Uh, The cross in Jerusalem. For example, Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, or, or Mark chapter 8, verse 33, both those passages. Peter's trying to prevent Jesus from the cross. Far be it from me, Lord, to let you be arrested and crucified. And how does Jesus respond? Oh, Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. Now, Jesus is very forceful in his rebuke. He says, Get behind me, Satan. Because this is a serious event for me. This is a serious moment. This is very important in the redemptive history of God's plan for humanity. Other texts, like John chapter 10, verse 11, 15, and 17, were told Jesus knows and willingly lays down his life for sinners. And as we come to this victory parade, we're not to see anything less than that church this fully known future that at the end of this week will be taking place undoubtedly, unhindered. Jesus knows it all and still triumphantly comes to Jerusalem. In fact, that's why Jesus would come triumphantly at all because He knows I'm about to win the war on the cross. So we come to verse 28 and we see this focused, we are reminded at least of this focused mentality and mission of our Lord going to His impending death. I would give you just a few reminders today about that before we go on. One, when we say that Jesus fully knows what's ahead and still goes, it reminds us and shows us how much Jesus cares to die for you. Our Lord is determined to bear your sin. Our Lord is determined to make a way of salvation. Our Lord is determined to be your atonement if you will place your faith in Him. Number two, again, it shows the singular focus of Christ's whole existence on earth. Jesus didn't come to conquer Rome like the zealots and His disciples had hoped. He didn't come to institute this moral revolution He didn't come to make people just better people. He came to die for sin. If you think Christianity has little to do with sin, you're wrong. Sin is a major deal in our faith. It's the whole purpose Christ lived on this earth, went to Jerusalem with such devotion, and died. Number three, we're reminded of the seriousness of sin. It's not just that you make a mistake against God when you sin you do something that required the life of Christ for forgiveness sin is serious number four it reminds us or me at least that if Jesus was that dedicated to die for us he most certainly will never lose us or leave us behind he so resolutely goes to Jerusalem and we're reminded of that over and over through Luke's Gospel. Why on earth would He lose us now? For those of us who belong to Him in faith and salvation, He's invested too much to leave us where we're at or let us go or let us lose our salvation. So this whole event, it's a major event in the life of Christ. major event in the eyes of Christ. It's this focused, going to the cross kind of event. And the whole reason we can call it triumphal is because Jesus knows I'm about to win the war on sin and death. And ultimately, He won't be stopped. Secondly, in verse 29-34, this isn't just a focused event for the Lord. It's a fixed event. In all of redemptive history since before the foundation of the world, this has been fixed in the heart and mind of God. Every detail has been spelled out. And not just spelled out, but completed. We go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 23. It's the definite plan of God for Jesus to be delivered up. Not the second plan or the hopeful plan. The absolute definite plan of God to offer Jesus for sin. The same is true with His triumphal entry. In other words, God's redemptive plan for humanity is so important to him, he leaves none of it up to chance. He is controlling every aspect. He is controlling every detail of his journey. Again, not just knowing what lies ahead, he's the orchestrator of what lies ahead. See how willingly God lays down his life for us, church. See how important it is to Christ that you be forgiven. See how much God wants to lavish grace on you. See how rich and abundant the mercy of God is. Let your hearts ponder and wonder and contemplate the vast joyful reality that Jesus knows what lies ahead, but not just knows, He's the orchestrator of it. And He's the one who sees it through and sees it to completion. Verse 29, Jesus is drawing near to these two suburb cities. Bethphage, which is smaller, and then Bethany, which is just right on the outset of Jerusalem. But more importantly, He's going through these cities to get to this singular mount called the Mount of Olivet or Olive. It means Olive Orchard. It's this very significant place in the timeline and history of scripture. It's about 300 feet elevated above Jerusalem. It's got this beautiful view of the whole city. And so you can kind of get this beautiful imagery and scenery as Christ would be coming down this mountain. He sees over the whole whole landscape of of all that's going on, this bustling capital city. It kind of lends itself to verse 41 in chapter 19 When he draws near and sees the city, he weeps over it. It's kind of this picture that's taking place right now. I see the place where I'm going to offer myself for the people in that city. But it's significant for other Old Testament reasons as well. It's that mountain that David, when his son Absalom rebels against him, drives him out and takes over the kingdom, that's the mountain David flees to. And David goes up that mountain in weeping, And mourning. In fact, let me just flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 15. Verse 30 summarizes this event. David's son Absalom again is rebelling and takes the kingdom away from his dad. In verse 30, David flees from his life and says, This: David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. It's in stark contrast to this event in Luke 19, isn't it? Where now Jesus comes down. He's not weeping. He's celebrating. He's not fleeing for His life. He's going to give His life. The people aren't coming with Him weeping and crying and mourning and hiding. They're celebrating. They're singing. They're giving shouts of joy. It's this beautiful picture that Christ isn't just coming down the Mount of Olives Olives because that's where He happens to be. He's reversing what happened with David. It's it's this glaring picture that finally a greater king has arrived. David was the greatest king they had known. So much of their faith and so much of their nationality had been built around David and the promise to David and the, the covenant to David. And finally, here's the son of David who is a greater king than David. And he's not fleeing up the mountain like David did. He's coming down in victory. It's this triumphant picture of a king. It's a beautiful picture of our king. David was never the solution for Israel. As great and useful as he was, he was not the Messiah. Jesus is. And that's what we're to conclude from texts text like this. Also, you look at another Old Testament passage, Ezekiel chapter 11. In that chapter, Ezekiel has this vision of the fall of Jerusalem around 586 B.C. And in that vision, he sees the glory of the Lord leave the city of Jerusalem and rest on the Mount of Olives. And now we fast forward to Luke 19 and what do we see? The glory of the Lord coming down the Mount of Olives back into the city to make access to God for all people. Jesus isn't just finding himself in this location, this is a divinely orchestrated, divinely fixed event that's very important in the eyes and heart of God. This mount is so significant to the people of Israel at the time of Christ that it's remarkable that he descends down into Jerusalem with shouts of celebration. None of this, church, is happenstance None of this is accidental. And in fact, none of these fixed events are are isolated to the Old Testament. If you look in the text itself, verse 30, Jesus gives instructions to two of His disciples. Go and find this colt. It's tied up. No one has ever sat on it. Untie it and bring it here. Now, one explanation for that statement is that Jesus has prearranged that that cult to be used. At one time, previously, he was in Jerusalem. He met up with some people and said, hey, on around such and such time, the Passover, I'm going to come. I'm going to ask for your cult and I want you to just give it to me and and I'll use it for a day. And that's a possibility. But I don't see that really in the text. I don't think the text limits us to that. I think Christ is divinely seen the plans of his details and he's playing them out. I think it's much like Jesus seeing Zac, uh, Zacchaeus up in the tree, or or John chapter one seeing Nathaniel when when Nathaniel's brought to him by Philip and Phil, uh, Nathaniel's coming up. Jesus says, oh, look, here's an Israelite indeed." And Nathaniel says, "How do you how do you know who I am?" Jesus says, "While you were still far off under that tree, I saw you." I think this is a divine moment where Christ sees what needs to happen and sees their provisions. He gives the disciples the password to this cult. When the owners ask, what are you doing? Verse 34, you say, the Lord has need of it. Or not verse 34, but verse 31. The Lord has need of it. Literally translated, that means its owner needs it. Which we can conclude that from how it's translated in the English. The Lord has need of it. The Lord is the rightful owner. It's this implication of divine authority. I have divine prerogative to commandeer this cult and use it. But not just divine authority over the cult. The, the very circumstances tells us Jesus has divine authority over this whole ordeal. Even up to the point of His death. So Jesus sends these two. And they go get this cult. He tells them in verse 30, I think a significant fact. It's a cult on which no one has ever sat. Luke doesn't record it, but Matthew and John record it. It's the cult of a donkey. The word could be a horse or a donkey, but we understand and it's important for us to understand later. It's the cult of a donkey. And I think the fact that Christ highlights no one's ever sat on it is important because it implies divine reservation. This element of being set apart for a sacred use. It's an unspoiled animal. That, that was custom and common for kings. No one rode the king's horse except the king. It was unspoiled. It, it was his and his alone. Reserved for his use and his use alone. And I think the cult is to, to be the same thing. This is for Christ and Christ alone. No one is to ride this cult. It's a, a sacred Burden of beasts, even just for this moment, it's set apart for use. All these things tell me, in my understanding, that Christ knows every detail and has laid out the plan from long ago. And every detail of going to Jerusalem and dying and resurrecting is going to come about exactly how he has planned. The church, the Lord so cares about us that nothing is left to chance with Him. So verse 32, verse 34, it happens exactly how Jesus says. Verse 34, the disciples tell the owners the Lord has need of it. The greater owner has need of it. And that's that. Doesn't seem to be a, a fight put up or anything like that. They give it to the disciples. I think from all these things, from the rebuking of Peter to the riding of this certain unspoiled cult of a donkey, all these things are meant to communicate to us the importance to God of this event that's happening, that every detail is going to happen just as He desires, and that the fixed nature of our Lord's victory procession is meant to remind us of the security of our redemption. Not one single hindrance is going to get in the way of Christ. Not one thing is treated casually. Not one thing is overlooked. Nothing from this moment on is left up in the air or is a guessing game. To the very cult that He uses to ride, from the very mountain that He rides down, it's all orchestrated by Christ. I keep wanting to remind you that that extends to the cross to the very nails that were used, I believe, was orchestrated by God. Thirdly, finally, from this text, verse 35 and 40, this event is not only a focused event or a fixed event, but closely related to that, it's a fulfilled event. That's the logical conclusion of it being fixed, that it's fulfilled, but... I want you to see that it's not just Christ planning these things out. It's Christ completing His own plan. Verse 35, they bring this unspoiled cult to the Lord. And in this very symbolic, respectful gesture, they throw their cloaks on Him for a makeshift saddle. Now, we know we're not reading in a lot to this because the pharisees are totally going to identify what's taking place in this whole event so let me just kind of explain some highlight points of that when they lay their cloaks on the cult and on the ground for the cult to walk on they're doing something that was only reserved for kings if you look in the old testament book second kings chapter 9 verses 1 through 13 you find a newly anointed king named jehu who Elisha had anointed out of the commanders of the army. And when the commanders of the army realized he had been anointed king, what do they do? They lay down their cloaks on the stairs for him to walk up and ascend to his rightful place as the new king. And such was the custom from the point on. The disciples here are doing this respectful gesture and they may not real have realized the significance of their Act, but they most certainly perform this important gesture and perhaps wishfully so. They no doubt wanted Jesus to be the king coming into Jerusalem. They wanted to respect him as Jehu was respected. Jesus may not be the recognized king, but he most certainly is the undisputed king and the disciples want that to be known. There's another perhaps more significant phrase that's only found in the Lucan account in verse 35. They set their cloaks on the colt and then Luke says they set Jesus on it. The other three accounts of this simply state as would be normal that Jesus sat on the colt. But for some odd reason, Luke doesn't say that. And we believe every word matters, don't we? We believe everything is given for a reason. Nothing is accidental in the Bible. And while we don't want to uh, read too much into any one phrase, we also don't want to ignore what might be some important significance in any given phrase. There's a balanced approach, and I believe there's some significance in this very phrase. Luke reports, they, the disciples, set Jesus on this cult. It makes me think of John 6.15 where John tells us that, that they tried to take Jesus and make Him king by force. I believe they're lifting up the Lord and setting Him on this colt as they would a king or a dignitary saying we lift up our king. Here comes the better David. Here comes the greater David. Here comes the greater Jehu. Here comes the glory of the Lord down the mount into Jerusalem. We know this is a significant event. They're going to cry that out in verse 38. We know this is a major deal. We might not know everything about this event, but we know this is a big deal. Christ coming into Jerusalem. We believe him to be Christ. He's coming in during the Passover. This is a major deal, and I believe they're wanting to lift him up as their king. What they don't realize is they're not lifting up a king. They're lifting up a sacrifice, aren't they? They don't set a king on a cult. They set a sacrifice on a cult. The sacrificial lamb that Scripture over and over again uses to identify Jesus. In fact, John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verse 29 uses that description for Jesus. When he sees Jesus coming, what does John the Baptist cry out? Behold, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Whether or not the disciples fully realized what they were doing, they did just sit apart and lift up the sacrificial lamb to be sacrificed. And in a continued respectful fashion, they lay down their cloaks for Jesus to ride into the city. Well, by verse 37, he's still not in... Jerusalem. He's still drawing near to Jerusalem, but by this time he's coming down the mountain and multitudes of disciples are around him and they begin to praise and rejoice uh, with a loud voice for all that they had seen. Uh, Remember, this is on the eve of the Passover. We're literally talking about potentially hundreds and hundreds of people. Lining this road and, and Matthew and John and Mark say, laying down palm branches, singing, shouting, celebrating. It's this beautiful, happy scene. It is this victory procession, this victory parade. Hundreds of people lining to celebrate this humble king riding in on this cult of a donkey. Luke tells us they're rejoicing and praising because of what they had seen Christ do. If you go back to the Acts chapter 2 passage, verse 22, Peter says that God did all these signs and wonders and works through Christ to affirm him, that people might see and believe in who he is. And for some people, it absolutely worked, they know in whom they have believed. They remember all the signs, all the teaching, all the casting out of demons, all the healings, all the miracles that Jesus has performed. They've seen Him walk on water. They've they've seen all these things that we've come to treasure in the Gospels. And so they conclude, rightfully, this is a major deal. We're rejoicing and we're praising God because look at what they say in verse 38. The King has... Come. This this event is slightly lost on you and I because we're removed from the culture and from the time. It wasn't lost on them. All that had taken place, all the symbolism, all the fulfillment, all the details had led them to come to this resounding conclusion in verse 38. Behold, our King is here. And comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is what they're shouting, church. Because in their minds, they're celebrating the conquering Messiah riding into Jerusalem. And they say, peace. And they say, glory. Let all things be made right now because the King is here. The King of the Lord is here. Back to verse 11 of this chapter, they've got the wrong understanding of the kingdom of God, don't they? Christ isn't coming in the way that they think. But nonetheless, He is coming as King. Now that very statement, verse 38, is key to the whole text. If you're able, flip over to Zechariah chapter 9. Old Testament minor prophet. If you go to Matthew, you can start going left to Malachi. Keep going left to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9 is the prophecy of this very event. Verse 9 is the specific prophecy of this event. But verse 10 through um, 13 is how the people would have continued to interpret it. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what we've just looked at. Continue on. Verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is what they're expecting. Verse 11, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. This is what they are saying. This is what they are thinking. Here is the king, and peace is going to get proclaimed because he's going to drive out oppressive Rome, declare victory, wage war. Our deliverer is here. And they're crying out, and they're crying out, and they are partially right. For as the Zechariah passage says, he does come righteous, humbled, and having salvation. But not the salvation that they think, and not in the way that they think. What makes Christ's triumphal entry triumphant again is the cross where salvation is finally secured once for all, He is the final, complete, full sacrifice for humanity. Verse 39, apparently the Pharisees understand the significance of what is happening because they come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Make them be quiet. Why? If Jesus is a nobody, this isn't a big deal, right? If this this event isn't anything, it's not a big deal. Who cares if they're singing these things? Who cares if some poor, humble peasant is coming down the mountain into Jerusalem and people are excited about it? It's not that big a deal. No, but for the people of the time, it was a very big deal and they knew exactly what was being proclaimed, exactly what was being said. They are saying, Zechariah nine is here. Our King is here. The Messiah is here. We're going to drive out Rome. We're going to win. Peace is going to be ours. Glory is going to be ours. We're going to be set free. The Pharisees totally get it and they say, make them be quiet. They're blaspheming. And what does Jesus say? Verse 40. He doesn't dismiss the wonder of the event. He says, I tell you, even if these were silenced, the very stones would cry out. He says, in this moment, silence isn't an option. And in this moment, worship is a requirement. Why does Christ make such a claim? Why does He uphold what these people are doing, His disciples why does he say let them praise? Because so often in his life up to this point, he has told them be quiet. Be quiet. Tell no one. And at this point he says let them sing. Let them shout. And if they don't, I'll make sure that creation does. It shouldn't be lost on us at this point, church. It's because This is a major ordeal in redemptive history. This is the beginning of the end for the plan of salvation in the life of Christ here on earth. He's about to secure the final stage of our redemption and dying on the cross. This is a major moment. And Jesus will not silence what's being proclaimed. And what is being proclaimed is this divinely promised Messiah. Is here. The Messiah. Has come. Salvation. Is offered. Fulfillment. Is here. Redemption. Has come. And Jesus says. I will not. Make them stop singing. Church. We should come to this place of understanding. This victory parade. In the same way that the people who were there. Understood it. And it should within our hearts make us well up in the same exclamation, in the same praise, and the same gratitude, and the same adoration. Because what was lost on them at the time is fully made known to us. Where we know for sure Jesus is the King. And we know the salvation that He brings. It's salvation of the soul. Who cares about Rome? Our soul has been taken care of. We ought to be exclaiming with passion, with zeal, with humility, with adoration the very same thing they exclaimed in verse 38. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. We ought not to read this passage and think that's just one isolated event there. We ought to read this passage and see such dedication to secure our salvation and equally praise God for it. This is our Lord's victory parade declared before the cross. And that's what makes it the victory parade, the cross and resurrection. Let me just share what happens at the cross. There He dies for sin. There Jesus satisfies the justice and wrath of God on behalf of sinners. And in the resurrection, Romans 4.25 says, there is our justification secured where we are made right before God. Every one of us stand guilty before a holy God. Every one of us sat here having transgressed the law. And it takes just one law to make us eternally guilty. One broken law. One transgression. Transgression and, and we are condemned. And we all sit here having broken probably all of them. We are guilty before God. Which means we need a Redeemer to come in triumphantly. We need a victorious King to come in and win the day. We need a Savior to ride in and rescue us. We need redemption. And we read nothing less in our Lord's triumphal entry in Luke 19.28. Christ rides into Jerusalem to be your Savior, to be your rescuer, to be your Redeemer. Every detail is seen through so that your salvation might be taken care of, so that your redemption might be secured and guaranteed for all eternity. Church, this is a passage that induces praise within us. Thank you, Lord for riding into time and creation to die on the cross in victory for my sin and salvation. Thank You, Lord. As believers, our only rightful response to this is saying, praise God. Praise God for the victory that was His before the death. That was His secured by His sovereignty and providence. And for unbelievers, the only rightful response is to say, Lord, save me. I need forgiveness. I need victory. I need that salvation. You fall in one of those two camps and how it is my desire that the lost would be saved would come to say, Christ came in victory and that's the victory I need. All you must do is repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ Call upon the name of the Lord, Joel 2 says, and you will be saved. And for those of us who have done that and have seen the faithfulness of Christ's promise to save us, a passage like this doesn't allow us to be stagnant or unconcerned or unmoved. If your heart is unmoved by the victory of Christ, that's your own fault. A passage like this brings us to celebration, gratitude, humility, and adoration. That changes the way we sing to the Lord. That changes the way we fellowship together. That changes the way we go to work tomorrow. That changes the way we spend our afternoon today. That changes everything about us because we are now the redeemed who are sharing in the victory parade of Christ. It's First or Second Corinthians. I can't remember off the top of my head right now, but Paul talks about Christ always leading you and I in triumphal procession. And He does so because He went in triumphal procession. So let us be the people who praise Him accordingly. Lord, Your Word is treasure to us because in it we see You, we behold You, we see such significance and such beauty and such meaning. God, I pray we wouldn't look at this um, event, this isolated one-time event Some 2000 years ago, we wouldn't look at it and think it doesn't apply. We would look at it and say, praise God that you orchestrated and completed and secured the plan of our redemption. From the way you entered Jerusalem to the way you left Jerusalem. From the triumphal entry through to the ascension, every detail. For your glory and our good. Help us to see it, O Lord. Help us to proclaim Zechariah 9 9. Behold, our King has come, righteous and having salvation is He. I pray that's true for all of us. And those here this morning, God, that it's not true of, pray that you would prick their heart. That your spirit, Lord, you, you would work as You are uh, revealed to us, convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment, bringing people to salvation. Oh God, do a work in us that only You can do, increasing joy and pleasure and adoration. Stir our hearts up, God, in a way that proves to this broken, hurting world that You are alive and care for us. We love You, Jesus. We thank You again. It's in Your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.